John 12, 9 to 26, hear the word of the Lord. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may recall from your high school English classes that you learned about how a typical plot line goes in a story. You meet the characters, and then there is some sort of conflict among those characters in the story. And that conflict then grows throughout the story, and it reaches a climax, and then there's a resolution. It doesn't always go that way, but that's a very typical way for a story to run. And that's really what we have in the gospel stories. We have a conflict. We meet the different personages and the characters, and and then there is this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And that conflict grows and grows and grows, and then it comes to a head, and there has to be some sort of resolution to this conflict. Now, Jesus brought it to a head in the Gospel of John only. We have the record of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus did that in a suburb of Jerusalem. It was a couple miles from Jerusalem. So this was, this was quite the provocation. He had done many of his miracles in Galilee up in the north, but here he did the greatest miracle of all, raising somebody from the dead two miles from Jerusalem, where there were many from Jerusalem that could witness it. And this was, this was kind of the last straw in the Gospel of John. Something, something had to be done about this Jesus. This had gotten completely out of hand. And so we read in chapter 11 the, the final solution, if you will, in verse 50. Here the high priest stood up, Caiaphas, and he said, You know nothing at all. He's speaking to his fellow 
his fellow religious leaders. You know nothing at all in verse 49. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So that was the solution. They had to get rid of Jesus. And it was better that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation perish because if he kept stirring up trouble, the Romans could come in and do something terrible to the whole people. So they were considering it expedient to sacrifice one for all the people. Now, the author of this gospel tells us he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this is one of the techniques that John loves to do. He loves to put truth into the mouths of Christ's enemies, where they say much more than they realize. They say much more than they realize, and we'll see that again in this text that I read today. Now, that's the situation. It's come to a head. It's come to this climax. The solution has been proposed. And so what we have in the text I read today was a crowd. A crowd went from Jerusalem back to Bethany because Jesus was back in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead and he was visiting. And so crowds went there. In verse 9, the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there and they went on account of Jesus, but they also went on account of Lazarus in verse 9 whom he had raised from the dead. Now think about that. This man had been dead for four days, and they wanted to meet him. Wouldn't you want to meet somebody like that and ask some questions? What happened during that time? How did it feel? How did it feel to die? What was going on during that time? Were you conscious? Were you, were you in communication with anybody? Did you see anything? And then how was it to come back to life? What, what was this? There would be a, a fascination and a curiosity Because all of us will have to pass that threshold and to get to talk to somebody who did and then came back to tell about it would be be quite a fascinating encounter. So they wanted to see Lazarus as well. Now, the leaders then extended their plan. Do you remember? Remember they said, okay, let's be expedient here. It's better for one person to die and not the whole nation die. They put that in the balance. They said it's, it's better to sacrifice one and, and, and spare the many. But now look what they said in verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, apparently going away from them, and believing in Jesus. Did you see how this plan doubled very easily? And this is what sin tends to do. You, you, you make one plan for sin, or you commit one sin, and then you need another one to kind of cover that one up, and then another one, and another, another. That, that's the slippery slope, and, and here we see that. They had said, okay, we're being expedient, we're sacrificing only one. And now they have to sacrifice, in their own minds, two, in order to stop this hemorrhage of people going away and believing in Jesus. Now, the next day, in verse 12, another crowd And by the way, it looks like we have three crowds in the section I read today. And let's try to keep these crowds straight. The first crowd was the crowd that went out from Jerusalem to Bethany to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. Now, on the next day, there's a large crowd. And there could be overlap between these different crowds, but they're distinguished here. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast. 
Now, this is the feast of the Passover, and so this was one of the three feasts in which Jews would travel to Jerusalem, and it was a large crowd. Now, there was an ancient uh, Jewish historian named Josephus, and he vastly exaggerated the number of visitors to Jerusalem. He said uh, at Passover, 2.7 million would, would visit Jerusalem. That is impossible. Jerusalem in those days was about one square mile uh, the size of the city. Uh, there was a more reasonable estimate by another scholar, more recent scholar, of 150,000. But even so, 150,000 cramming into a walled city of one square mile, that's a powder keg. That is a, that is a crush of people. And it says that large crowd was heading to Jerusalem. They were going to the feast, and one of the places from which they would have come, one of the principal places from which they would have come, was Galilee in the north. Remember in those days, there was Judah in the south, there were the Samaritans, the half-Jews in the middle, and then there were the, the, the Galileans up north. And, and Jesus did much of his ministry in Galilee, so many would have known of Jesus in Galilee, and they were coming to the feast as they normally would have. Now, as they were coming to the feast, Jesus also was entering this uh, into Jerusalem. Jesus was coming there, verse 12, and so they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, the, the, uh, the palm branches, they're not native to that area. And so the question is, where do these, why do they have palm branches? Well, it looks like palm branches had become customary for celebrations. And so it looks like they... Among the things they took to the feast were palm branches because that's one of the things you do to, to celebrate. And if you look at, for example, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, uh, it mentions palm branches. It says here, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with what? palm branches in their hands. So that had become customary for celebrations. There are a couple of books that were written between the end of our Old Testament and our New Testament. And these books fill in some of the history. They're not part of the, the, uh, the Jewish scriptures, but they, are, they fill in some of the history about the conflicts between the Jews and the Greeks. And uh, there are a couple of books are called Maccabees. There's a first Maccabees and there's second Maccabees. Well, uh, they're named after Judah, Judah Maccabee and his family. And in 164 BC, Judah Maccabee had driven the Syrians out. The Syrians were the ones who were controlling the area. He had driven them out. And the Jews went out to honor Judah Maccabee for this great military triumph. And they did so, we're told, with palm branches. And then they also de rededicated the temple because he drove these, these Syrians out there to rededicate the temple. And in 2 Maccabees, we find that how did they rededicate the temple? They used palm branches. So even in, in sort of recent history, before Jesus was there, this had become apparently customary. And another thing that they did when they were going up to Jerusalem, these pilgrims, they did what pilgrims tend to do. They sang songs, and they sang particularly the Psalms. That's the songbook of Israel, and they were singing Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which say this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. 
they had modified it a bit. They said this, Hosanna, and by the way, Hosanna is the, the save us we pray, save us now. So that's, uh, that's Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes, that comes from verse 26. And then they, they added on, even the king of Israel. So they were, if, if I could say, they were riffing on Psalm 118, 25, and 26, modifying it. But they added this section about the king of Israel. So they had some notion that Jesus was, was fulfilling this, this psalm. And then Jesus did something to encourage that interpretation. He found a young donkey. He sat on it. And then we have in Matthew and John, we have the quotation from Zechariah. We don't have that in in Mark or Luke, but in in Matthew and John, we have this quotation, fear not. And here's the Zechariah 9.9 quotation. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus is is kind of, he's, he's encouraging the crowd here. And this is a new thing. Jesus, do you remember when he would do miracles, he would often slip away? He would tell the people, don't tell anybody. And now Jesus is is in the middle of this crowd. They're singing to him, applying this this song about the the one coming in the name of the Lord. Uh, He's he's encouraging by by acting out Zechariah 9.9. He fulfilled, he was fulfilling their expectations but at the same time, by fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, he was modifying their expectations. They were expecting a king. And a donkey was not unworthy of a king. If you go back to the time of the judges, it talks about one of the judges and his sons rode on, on donkeys. Uh, if you go uh, to when David was fleeing from Absalom, Absalom in uh, 2 Samuel 16.2, you find that somebody very helpfully brought mounts for the king's sons, and these mounts were, were donkeys. And so donkeys were not an unkingly thing to ride, but they were more appropriate for a king to ride in times of peace. Now, you wouldn't want to charge into a battle on a donkey. You would want a, a war horse for that. And if you go back to the Zechariah, Zechariah 9, it talks about that this coming king would be a king of peace, and he would, he would conquer but he would conquer in order to bring peace. So here, the prophecy predicted that a king would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. It says that the disciples sort of got this. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Then we get to the third crowd. So we have the crowd that went to Bethany, we have the crowd of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, and now we have a third crowd. And like I say, these are probably overlapping to some degree. But if you look at verse 17, it said, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, and it looks like, it's not entirely clear, it looks like there's a crowd coming into Jerusalem singing, and Jesus riding on the donkey, and it looks like another crowd is coming out to meet him. So this is quite a volatile situation here where there are these two crowds coming together. It looks like this third crowd, if I'm reading this correctly, was a crowd that, that went out to meet him when they heard uh, that he was coming because they were the ones who said, we saw what he did in Bethany. So they go to meet him. They heard that he had done this sign. And so what's happening? The leaders were again frustrated. 
because what they were doing was clearly not working. Their efforts to stop people from believing in Jesus were not working. There's this crowd coming into Jerusalem, singing psalms. He's, he's, he's fulfilling Zechariah. It looks like this other crowd coming out to meet him, and they're testifying about the fact that he had just raised somebody from the dead in Bethany not long ago. This was clearly not working. And so here we have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees and the chief priests were of two different groups. The, the chief priests were of the, the Sadducees, the politically connected ones. Uh, the Pharisees were the, were the ones, that the law-keeping party, the sect of, of, the, of the Jews. And so we've already heard the plan of the, the chief priests, and now the Pharisees are frustrated. In verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. This is their complaint to each other. Like, you're, you're, you're doing nothing. We're, we're accomplishing nothing here. And they throw up their hands and they say, look, the world has gone after him. And once again, we have what? We have more truth in the mouths of Christ's enemies than they even realized. And, and, uh, and here, there are two senses in which there's more truth. First, they're saying, you're profiting nothing. What you're doing is not profitable. And so they're saying, they're actually confessing, but they don't realize it. At that point, they're saying, you're not doing anything profitable. So they should, the answer should have been, well, let's change course. Let's figure out if we're wrong here. But they're telling more truth than they realize. And the second thing is this. They're exaggerating, but they say, look, the world has gone after him. They're throwing their, their hands up and saying, the world has gone after him. And here they're saying much more than they realize. In John, generally the word world means rebellious humanity. Rebellious humanity is going after him. And in their mouths, they're probably meaning everyone's going after him. And that wasn't quite true, but it sure looked like it at the time. People coming in, people going out to meet him. It looked like the whole city was going after him. All the Jews were going after him. Now, there's something very clever that happens here. It's almost as if somebody raised a cue card uh, at the word world. Look, the world has gone after him. And then the next verse says, now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The Greeks. Who are the Greeks? The world. So it's as if this play is going on. And uh, so when you, Greeks, when you hear the word world, you enter from stage left. So they're throwing up their hands and they're saying, the world. And they mean the Jews. All the Jews are going after him. And then world is going after him. And then who is it? the world. We're here, and we want to see Jesus. So it was worse than they thought. They thought only many Jews were going after him, and here these, these Greeks show up, and they want to see Jesus. Now, Jesus' answer to them seems not to be an answer. He seems to ignore them. You, you would think that this was the opportunity to say, ha, see, not only Jews, also the Greeks fall in line. But he, he gives an answer that doesn't seem to be an answer, but actually it turns out to be a greater answer in verse 23. So the, the news gets to Jesus that the world's there at the doorstep wanting to see him. So Philip and Andrew, they go and they tell Jesus, and Jesus answers in verse 23, and he says this. 
the hour has come. The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we don't have the, the privilege. We did it a, a couple years ago to, to read the Gospel of John and to go through it together. But here, we should, this should, we should perk up at this point. Because through the Gospel of John, we have had this, whoa, 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 wait, the hour's not here. The time's not here. As far back as John chapter 3, uh, or John, I'm sorry, not John chapter 3, it's, uh, where is it? It's John chapter uh, 2, verse 4. We read this. And Jesus said to her, you remember when there was no more wine at the banquet? And Jesus' mother wanted him to do something. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then if you turn over to chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And now the Greeks, the Jews are following him. The Greeks are following him. And he says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this looks like it's going amazingly well here. So the Jews are following him. The Greeks are following. They're singing kingly songs to him. He is acting out the kingly entrance in Jerusalem. And he says, it's time for me to be glorified. And so what was it time to do? Well, obviously, it was time to be enthroned. It was time to be declared king by by the Jews and by the Gentiles. It was time to be recognized as as the coming king. It was time for him to be lifted up to the throne. And and Jesus had indicated, and and the author of of John had indicated, that that he would be lifted up. So this is what I was about to read mistakenly earlier, but now uh, in chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then in addition to 3.14 and 8.28, we have language like that again. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up, the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. It is time, folks, for Jesus to be lifted up. He's just announced that. It wasn't time. It wasn't time. The hour has not yet come. And now He says, the hour has come for me to be exalted. It's time for me to be lifted up, to be enthroned, to be glorified. Now, then Jesus said something which really doesn't fit the occasion. It doesn't seem to anyway. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What? It seems to be completely out of place. Why would he say that? It was going so well. It was up, up, up. They were going up to Jerusalem. And he says, it's time. It's time for me to be lifted up. And then he talks about a grain of wheat falling to the earth 
and dying? Why would he kind of spoil the occasion? Why would he, why would he talk about dying when it's, talk, when it's time for him to talk about, about being lifted up? Well, in verses 32 and 33 of this same chapter, we have the explanation. Jesus said this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was already drawing many Jews, already drawing some Greeks. And he says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And then we have the authorial comment by the author of this gospel, verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so now finally we put two and two together and we realize that he would be lifted up from the earth. And by being lifted up from the earth, he, he would be enthroned. And, and from that position of authority, he would draw all people to follow him, but he would be lifted up on a cross. And so in the Gospel of John, the beginning of Jesus' enthronement, of his being lifted up, is not at the resurrection like it is in the, in the other three Gospels. It starts earlier in the Gospel of John. He's lifted up when he's lifted up on a cross to be crucified. That's why there's no contradiction between verses 23 and 24. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was talking about himself, that he would die and he would rise as a plant rises and he would bear much fruit. He would draw all people to himself. That's what his glorification would start to look like. But not only that, Jesus went on and applied that same principle to everyone else. In verses 25 and 26, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that certainly applies to him. He was willing to hate his life, as it were, sacrifice his life to keep it for eternal life for all who would believe in him. But, but not only that, in verse 26, he's not applying this just to himself. He's applying this to anyone. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. What's he saying? He's saying this is the path to honor. This is the path to glory. But what is that path? What is the, what is the avenue? That avenue goes through death in order to get to life. If you're a follower of him, there's not a separate path for you. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And he's that grain that falls to the earth and dies and then bears much fruit. And he's saying, if you want to be a follower of me, you need to follow that same path. You need to sacrifice your life so that you might bear much fruit. If you want to hold on to your life, protect your life, then you'll lose it. But if you, you give it up for me, you will retain it unto eternal life. The way to lose our lives is to hold on to them. Something we can't do anyway for very long. We can't do that very long, can we? And so... Even though that's an impossibility, it's something we tend to want to do. But that's the way to lose our lives. The way to have eternal life is to, 
to give up our lives in following Christ. About two months ago, early Rain Covenant Church in China began public worship again. Not many of you were here in 2018, but you may recall that we were praying for Early Rain Covenant Church, and I have to admit that I've slacked off praying for Early Rain Covenant Church. I've kind of lost track of them, but there is a a Facebook page, and I direct you to that Facebook page. It's called Pray for Early Rain Covenant Church. Back in 18, they were thriving church. They, they were hundreds of people. They had a building where they met. They had a seminary. They had a, a Christian school. I think maybe they had a college. And the authorities just swept in and shut them down and it jailed the pastor for nine years. So now we're talking about he's about maybe halfway through his sentence. And they tried to scatter them. And then the, the, the pandemic hit. And so for these years, you know that China has really clamped down on, on meetings and so on. And so they were not able to meet. And then... And now that the, those restrictions have been lifting, they lifted, they started meeting again. And, and this is what we read about two months ago. Early Rain Covenant Church began regularly worshiping together in person as a whole church for the first time since they were raided and banned in December 2018. Until recently, they have only been able to meet in small groups and to worship together online. However, now that the church is once again meeting together in person, authorities have intensified pressures against the church, putting leaders on house arrest, intimidating and detaining members. This Lord's Day, this was written just a month ago, authorities forced them out of the venue they had rented and attempted to force them out of the second venue they found. The official church update is below. New challenges facing these precious brothers and sisters. Please continue praying for them. Uh, there's a video on that Facebook page where they're standing in front of the, the, the police station where some of their members have been detained. And they're standing out front and they have their children there. They're young families and young people. And they're, they're standing out there singing hymns in front of, of the police station as their, their members are being interrogated. And who knows what else is happening inside. Jesus said, he who loves his life in this life will lose it. He who, he who gives it will gain it for eternal life. I was moved as I was thinking about them and reading this text. There's some brothers and sisters that are taking this to heart. They're, they're not being self-protective. They're, they're wanting to maintain their public testimony for Jesus no matter what it costs. And they're the ones that are they're following Jesus. And I had to ask myself, and I don't really have the answer to this question. It's a question for each one of us. If that's what it looks like over there, and that's not even the worst persecution around the world, by the way. There, there's worse persecution than that, where brothers and sisters are, are standing for Jesus and laying down their life for Jesus. But then I ask myself, what's it look like for us? Here we are with the religious freedoms that we enjoy it's not our fault that we have this religious freedom. Here we are living in, in, in opulence, really. Even, even the, the one who, who has the, the most scarcity among us compared to much of the world is living in, in great abundance. Here we are in this land of the free and land of much abundance. And I ask myself, what's it look like for us? What's it look like for us to, to, to hate our lives, as it were, in this, in this charmed existence in which we live? What's it look like for us to to follow Jesus. I I got to go to India once, a long time ago, and I was amazed at the Christians there. They they didn't seem to have much. There was all sorts of idolatry all around them, and they had their their churches and 
they had stone floors and they had the dirt outside and they'd take off their shoes before entering because it's holy ground and and they would go in and they would pray and they would pray always kneeling and there was kneeling on the dirt or kneeling on the stone floor and I was I was dying and I was shuffling around my knees were not used to that sort of thing and and I was sitting around and and asked some of the Christians there I said where do you think I just wanted to get their impression I said where do you think it's harder to follow Jesus from what you know in India or in the United States because I was looking at them I was looking at the scarcity I was looking at the idolatry all around them and now in India there's a there's more persecution against uh, non-Hindus and and I asked them and their their answer surprised me immediately they said oh in the United States, much harder to be a follower of Jesus. And he said, well, what, why is that? And they said, well, you all have cars and you have houses and you, you have so much stuff. How can you be a, a follower of Jesus with, with all that stuff? And I never forgot that. And it makes me ask that question, how, how can we be? How can we be followers of Jesus with all this stuff? Like I say, it's not... Not bad stuff. It's not our fault that we have all this stuff and that we enjoy all this religious liberty. It's wonderful blessings. But, but how much more responsibility then to be followers of Jesus with what he has entrusted to us? This is, this is our path to glory, folks. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for... We're looking to be glorified like Jesus was glorified. How was Jesus glorified? He was glorified by his father by laying down his life. That's, that's the real glory. That's the, that's the eternal glory. That's the, that's the weighty glory that we really need to be looking for. And this is the way to get it, by, by following the same path that Jesus followed. Not to petty self-glorification for a few minutes on earth, but eternal glory given to us by God. Now, as I said, Jesus looks like he ignored the Greeks' request to see him, but actually he answered it uh, more than they knew. He answered it by saying, oh, you handful of Greeks want to see me? Actually, I'm going to make myself visible to everyone. I'm going to be lifted up. Not only a few Greeks looking for me will have an audience with me, but anyone who wants to. Because I am going to be lifted up. I am going to be visible by the entire world. All Jews can look to me. All Greeks can look to me. He's saying, I will be lifted up on the cross. You know, the religious leaders got it almost right. And it looked like it in their day. They said, look, the world has gone after him. The Jews going after him. The Greeks have gone after him. And that's how it is to this day. Many Jews continue to go after Jesus. Praise be to God. Many Greeks, that is to say non-Jews, around the world are flocking to see Jesus. And so the question is for us, because not everyone yet has gone after him, their, their statement continues to be an exaggeration. Not everyone yet has gone after him, but there's still time. There's still time. There's still time for us today. How do I know that? Because we're here and we're still alive. And so there is still time today to go after Jesus. And there's still time for our neighbors. And there's still time for people in West Africa. And there's still time for people in New York City. There's still time for people on the streets of Miami and where we have our missionaries. But there's still time for the world 
to go after Jesus. So, so make sure you're one of those who's going after Jesus. Because if you're here today and you've heard that Jesus is lifted up, then, then look to him. He's visible. Look to him and live. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that Jesus did not hold on to his life. And even though the plan was wicked to sacrifice one man for the people, the plan of the chief priest, that is, the plan was also divine that one man would die for us so that we might not perish, but rather have eternal life. And I pray that all of us hearing this text today would look to Jesus, would believe in Jesus, would go after Jesus, would see Jesus, and not only that, that we would follow Jesus. And help us to figure out what that looks like, Lord. In our day, in our world, help us to figure out what it looks like to hate our lives, to lay them down so that they might bear much fruit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.